This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 36. Nine Thousand Miles East. Imitation American Town in Russia. Gratitude that came too late. To visit the autocrat of all the Russias. We have got so far east now, a hundred and fifty-five degrees of longitude from San Francisco, that my watch cannot keep the hang of the time any more. It has grown discouraged, and stopped. I think it did a wise thing. The difference in time between Sebastopol and the Pacific coast is enormous. When it is six o'clock in the morning here, it is somewhere about week before last in California. We are excusable for getting a little tangled as to time. These distractions and distresses about the time have worried me so much that I was afraid my mind was so much affected that I never would have any appreciation of time again. But when I noticed how handy I was yet about comprehending when it was dinner-time, a blessed tranquillity settled down upon me, and I am tortured with doubts and fears no more. Odessa is about twenty hours' run from Sebastopol, and is the most northerly port in the Black Sea. We came here to get coal, principally. The city has a population of one hundred and thirty-three thousand, and is growing faster than any other small city out of America. It is a free port, and is the great grain mart of this particular part of the world. Its roadstead is full of ships. Engineers are at work now, turning the open roadstead into a spacious artificial harbor. It is to be almost enclosed by massive stone piers, one of which will extend into the sea over three thousand feet in a straight line. I have not felt so much at home for a long time as I did when I raised the hill and stood in Odessa for the first time. It looked just like an American city. Fine, broad streets, and straight as well low houses, two or three stories, wide, neat, and free from any quaintness of architectural ornamentation, locust-trees bordering the sidewalks, they call them acacias, a stirring business look about the streets and the stores, fast walkers, a familiar new look about the houses and everything, yea, and a driving and smothering cloud of dust that was so like a message from our own dear native land that we could hardly refrain from shedding a few grateful tears and execrations in the old-time honored American way. Look up the street or down the street, this way or that way, we saw only America. There was not one thing to remind us that we were in Russia. We walked for some little distance, reveling in this home vision, and then we came upon a church and a hack-driver, and presto, the illusion vanished. The church had a splendor-spired dome that rounded inward at its base, and looked like a turnip turned upside down, and the hackman seemed to be dressed in a long petticoat without any hoops. These things were essentially foreign, and so were the carriages, but everybody knows about these things, and there is no occasion for my describing them. We were only to stay here a day and a night, and take in coal. We consulted the guide-books, and were rejoiced to know that there were no sights in Odessa to see, and so we had one good, untrammeled holiday on our hands, with nothing to do but idle about the city and enjoy ourselves. We sauntered through the markets, and criticized the fearful and wonderful costumes from the back country, examined the populace as far as eyes could do it, 
and closed the entertainment with an ice-cream debauch. We do not get ice-cream everywhere, and so, when we do, we are apt to dissipate to excess. We never cared anything about ice-cream at home, but we look upon it with a sort of idolatry now that it is so scarce in these red-hot climates of the East. We only found two pieces of statuary, and this was another blessing. One was a bronze image of the Duc de Richelieu, grand-nephew of the splendid cardinal. It stood in a spacious, handsome promenade overlooking the sea, and from its base a vast flight of stone steps led down to the harbor, two hundred of them, fifty feet long, and a wide landing at the bottom of every twenty. It is a noble staircase, and from a distance the people toiling up it looked like insects. I mention this statue and this stairway because they have their story. Richelieu founded Odessa, watched over it with paternal care, labored with a fertile brain and wise understanding for its best interests, spent his fortune freely to the same end, endowed it with a sound prosperity, and one which will yet make it one of the great cities of the old world, built this noble stairway with money from his own private purse, and, well, the people for whom he had done so much let him walk down these same steps one day, unattended, old, poor, without a second coat to his back, and when, years afterwards, he died in Sebastopol, in poverty and neglect, they called a meeting, subscribed liberally, and immediately erected this tasteful monument to his memory, and named a great street after him. It reminds me of what Robert Burns' mother said when they erected a stately monument to his memory. Ah, Robbie, ye asked them for bread, and they gin ye a stone. The people of Odessa have warmly recommended us to go and call on the Emperor, as did the Sebastopolians. They have telegraphed His Majesty, and he has signified his willingness to grant us an audience. So we are getting up the anchors and preparing to sail to his watering place. What a scratching around there will be now! What a holding of important meetings, and appointing of solemn committees, and what a furbishing up of claw-hammer coats and white silk neckties! As this fearful ordeal we are about to pass through pictures itself to my fancy in all its dread sublimity, I begin to feel my fierce desire to converse with a genuine emperor cooling down and passing away. What am I to do with my hands? What am I to do with my feet? What in the world am I to do with myself? End of chapter 36 Chapter 37 Summer Home of Royalty Practicing for the Dread Ordeal Committee on Imperial Address Reception by the Emperor and Family Dresses of the Imperial Party Concentrated Power Counting the Spoons At the Grand Dukes A Charming Villa A Knightly Figure the Grand Duchess, a Grand Ducal Breakfast, Baker's Boy, the Famine Breeder, Theatrical Monarchs a Fraud, Saved as by Fire, The Governor, General's Visit to the Ship, Official Style, Aristocratic Visitors, Munchausenizing with them, Closing Ceremonies. We anchored here at Yalta, Russia, two or three days ago. To me the place was a vision of the Sierras the tall gray mountains that back it, their sides bristling with pines, cloven with ravines, here and there a hoary rock towering into view, long straight streaks sweeping down from the summit to the sea, marking the passage of some avalanche of former times, 
all these were as like what one sees in the Sierras, as if the one were a portrait of the other. The little village of Yalta nestles at the foot of an amphitheatre, which slopes backward and upward to the wall of hills, and looks as if it might have sunk quietly down to its present position from a higher elevation. This depression is covered with the great parks and gardens of noblemen, and through the mass of green foliage the bright colors of their palaces bud out here and there like flowers. It is a beautiful spot. We had the United States Consul on board, the Odessa Consul. We assembled in the cabin, and commanded him to tell us what we must do to be saved, and tell us quickly. He made a speech. The first thing he said fell like a blight on every hopeful spirit. He had never seen a court reception. Three groans for the consul. But he said he had seen receptions at the Governor-General's in Odessa, and had often listened to people's experience of receptions at the Russian and other courts, and believed he knew very well what sort of ordeal we were about to essay. Hope budded again. He said we were many. The summer palace was small, a mere mansion. Doubtless we should be received in summer fashion, in the garden. We would stand in a row, all the gentlemen in swallow-tail coats, white kids, white neckties, and the ladies in light-colored silks, or something of that kind. At the proper moment, twelve meridian, the emperor, attended by his suite, arrayed in splendid uniforms, would appear and walk slowly along the line, bowing to some, and saying two or three words to others. At the moment His Majesty appeared, a universal, delighted, enthusiastic smile ought to break out like a rash among the passengers, a smile of love, of gratification, of admiration. And with one accord the party must begin to bow, not obsequiously, but respectfully and with dignity. At the end of fifteen minutes the Emperor would go in the house, and we could run along home again. We felt immensely relieved. It seemed, in a manner, easy. There was not a man in the party but believed that, with a little practice, he could stand in a row, especially if there were others along. There was not a man but believed he could bow without tripping on his coat-tail and breaking his neck. In a word, we came to believe we were equal to any item in the performance except that complicated smile. The consul also said we ought to draft a little address to the emperor, and present it to one of his aides-de-camp, who would forward it to him at the proper time. Therefore, five gentlemen were appointed to prepare the document, and the fifty others went sadly smiling about the ship, practicing. During the next twelve hours we had the general appearance, somehow, of being at a funeral, where everybody was sorry the death had occurred, but glad it was over, where everybody was smiling, and yet broken-hearted. A committee went ashore to wait on His Excellency the Governor-General, and learn our fate. At the end of three hours of boating suspense, they came back and said the Emperor would receive us at noon the next day, would send carriages for us, would hear the address in person. The Grand Duke Michael had sent to invite us to his palace also. Any man could see that there was an intention here to show that Russia's friendship for America was so genuine as to render even her private citizens objects worthy of kindly attentions. At the appointed hour we drove out three miles, and assembled in the handsome garden in front of the Emperor's palace. We formed a circle under the trees before the door, for there was no one room in the house able to accommodate our threescore persons comfortably, and in a few minutes the Imperial family came out bowing and smiling, and stood in our midst. A number of great dignitaries of the Empire, in undress unit forms, came with them. 
With every bow His Majesty said a word of welcome. I copy these speeches. There is character in them, Russian character, which is politeness itself, and the genuine article. The French are polite, but it is often mere ceremonious politeness. A Russian imbues his polite things with a heartiness, both of phrase and expression, that compels belief in their sincerity. As I was saying, the Tsar punctuated his speeches with bows. "'Good morning! I am glad to see you. I am gratified. I am delighted. I am happy to receive you.' All took off their hats, and the consul inflicted the address on him. He bore it with unflinching fortitude then took the rusty-looking document, and handed it to some great officer or other, to be filed away among the archives of Russia, in the stove. He thanked us for the address, and said he was very much pleased to see us, especially as such friendly relations existed between Russia and the United States. The Empress said the Americans were favorites in Russia, and she hoped the Russians were similarly regarded in America. These were all the speeches that were made and I recommend them to parties who present policemen with gold watches, as models of brevity and point. After this the Empress went and talked sociably, for an Empress, with various ladies around the circle. Several gentlemen entered into a disjointed general conversation with the Emperor. The dukes and princes, admirals and maids of honor dropped into free and easy chat with first one and then another of our party and whoever chose stepped forward and spoke with the modest little Grand Duchess Marie, the Tsar's daughter. She is fourteen years old, light-haired, blue-eyed, unassuming, and pretty. Everybody talks English. The Emperor wore a cap, frock-coat, and pantaloons, all of some kind of plain white drilling, cotton or linen, and sported no jewelry or any insignia whatever of rank. No costume could be less ostentatious. He is very tall and spare, and a determined-looking man, though very pleasant-looking one nevertheless. It is easy to see that he is kind and affectionate. There is something very noble in his expression when his cap is off. There is none of that cunning in his eye that all of us noticed in Louis Napoleon's. The Empress and the little Grand Duchess wore simple suits of foulard, or foulard silk, I don't know which is proper, with a small blue spot in it. The dresses were trimmed with blue. Both ladies wore broad blue sashes about their waists, linen collars and clerical ties of muslin, low-crowned straw hats trimmed with blue velvet, parasols, and flesh-colored gloves. The Grand Duchess had no heels on her shoes. I do not know this of my own knowledge, but one of our ladies told me so. I was not looking at her shoes. I was glad to observe that she wore her own hair, plaited in thick braids against the back of her head, instead of the uncomely thing they call a waterfall, which is about as much like a waterfall as a canvas-covered ham is like a cataract. Taking the kind expression that is in the Emperor's face, and the gentleness that is in his young daughter's into consideration, I wondered if it would not tax the Tsar's firmness to the utmost to condemn a supplicating wretch to misery in the wastes of Siberia if she pleaded for him. Every time their eyes met I saw more and more what a tremendous power that weak, diffident schoolgirl could wield if she chose to do it. Many and many a time she might rule the autocrat of Russia, whose lightest word is law to seventy millions of human beings. She was only a girl, and she looked like a thousand others I have seen, but never a girl provoked such a novel and peculiar interest in me before. 
A strange new sensation is a rare thing in this humdrum life, and I had it here. There was nothing stale or worn out about the thoughts and feelings the situation and the circumstances created. It seemed strange, stranger than I can tell, to think that the central figure in the cluster of men and women, chatting here under the trees like the most ordinary individual in the land, was a man who could open his lips and ships would fly through the waves. Locomotives would speed over the plains, couriers would hurry from village to village, a hundred telegraphs would flash the word to the four corners of an empire that stretches its vast proportions over a seventh part of the habitable globe, and a countless multitude of men would spring to do his bidding. I had a sort of vague desire to examine his hands and see if they were of flesh and blood like other men's. Here was a man who could do this wonderful thing, and yet if I chose, I could knock him down. The case was plain, but it seemed preposterous, nevertheless, as preposterous as trying to knock down a mountain, or wipe out a continent. If this man sprained his ankle, a million miles of telegraph would carry the news over mountains, valleys, uninhabited deserts, under the trackless sea, and ten thousand newspapers would prate of it. If he were grievously ill, all the nations would know it before the sun rose again. If he dropped lifeless where he stood, his fall might shake the thrones of half a world. If I could have stolen his coat, I would have done it. When I meet a man like that, I want something to remember him by. As a general thing, we have been shown through palaces by some plush-legged filigreed flunky or other who charged a franc for it. But after talking with the company half an hour, the Emperor of Russia and his family conducted us all through their mansion themselves. They made no charge they seemed to take a real pleasure of it. We spent half an hour idling through the palace, admiring the cosy apartments and the rich but eminently homelike appointments of the place, and then the imperial family bade our party a kind good-bye, and proceeded to count the spoons. An invitation was extended to us to visit the palace of the eldest son, the Crown Prince of Russia, which was near at hand. The young man was absent, but the dukes and countesses and princes went over the premises with us as leisurely as was the case at the emperor's, and conversations continued as lively as ever. It was a little after one o'clock now. We drove to the Grand Duke Michael's, a mile away, in response to his invitation previously given. We arrived in twenty minutes from the emperor's. It is a lovely place. The beautiful palace nestles among the grand old groves of the park. The park sits in the lap of the picturesque crags and hills, and both look out upon the breezy ocean. In the park are rustic seats here and there, in secluded nooks that are dark with shade. There are rivulets of crystal water, there are lakelets with inviting grassy banks, there are glimpses of sparkling cascades through openings in the wilderness of foliage. There are streams of clear water gushing from mimic knots on the trunks of forest trees. There are miniature marble temples perched upon gray old crags. There are airy lookouts whence one can gaze upon a broad expanse of landscape and ocean. The palace is modeled after the choicest forms of Grecian architecture, and its wide colonnades surround a central court that is banked with rare flowers that fill the place with their fragrance and in their midst springs a fountain that cools the summer air, and may possibly breed mosquitoes, but I do not think it does. The Grand Duke and his Duchess came out, and the presentation ceremonies were as simple as they had been at the Emperor's. In a few minutes conversation was under way as before. The Empress appeared in the veranda, and the little Grand Duchess came out into the crowd. They had beaten us there. 
In a few minutes the Emperor came himself on horseback. It was very pleasant. You can appreciate it if you ever visited royalty and felt occasionally that possibly you might be wearing out your welcome, though as a general thing I believe royalty is not scrupulous about discharging you when it is done with you. The Grand Duke is the third brother of the Emperor, is about thirty-seven years old, perhaps, and is the princeliest figure in Russia. He is even taller than the Tsar, as straight as an Indian, and bears himself like one of those gorgeous knights we read about in romances of the Crusades. He looks like a great-hearted fellow who would pitch an enemy into the river in a moment, and then jump in and risk his life fishing him out again. The stories they tell of him show him to be of a brave and generous nature. He must have been desirous of proving that Americans were welcome guests in the imperial palaces of Russia, because he rode all the way to Yalta, and escorted our procession to the Emperor's himself, and kept his aides scurrying about, clearing the road, and offering assistance wherever it could be needed. We were rather familiar with him then, because we did not know who he was. We recognized him now, and appreciated the friendly spirit that prompted him to do us a favor that any other Grand Duke in the world would have doubtless declined to do. He had plenty of servitors whom he could have sent, but he chose to attend to the matter himself. The Grand Duke was dressed in the handsome and showy uniform of a Cossack officer. The Grand Duchess had on a white alpaca robe, with the seams and gores trimmed with black barb lace, and a little gray hat with a feather of the same color. She is young, rather pretty, modest and unpretending, and full of winning politeness. Our party walked all through the house, and then the nobility escorted them all over the grounds, and finally brought them back to the palace about half-past two o'clock to breakfast. They called it breakfast, but we would have called it luncheon. It consisted of two kinds of wine—tea, bread, cheese, and cold meats—and was served on the center-tables, in the reception-room and the verandas, anywhere that was convenient. There was no ceremony. It was a sort of picnic. I had heard before that we were to breakfast there, but Blucher said he believed Baker's boy had suggested it to His Imperial Highness. I think not, though it would be like him. Baker's boy is the famine-breeder of the ship. He is always hungry. They say he goes about the staterooms when the passengers are out, and eats up all the soap. And they say he eats oakum. They say he will eat anything he can get between meals, but he prefers oakum. He does not like oakum for dinner but he likes it for a lunch, at odd hours, or anything that way. It makes him very disagreeable, because it makes his breath bad, and keeps his teeth all stuck up with tar. Baker's boy may have suggested the breakfast, but I hope he did not. It went off well, anyhow. The illustrious host moved about from place to place, and helped to destroy the provisions and keep the conversation lively and the Grand Duchess talked with the veranda parties, and such as had satisfied their appetites, and straggled out from the reception-room. The Grand Duke's tea was delicious. They give one a lemon to squeeze into, or iced milk, if he prefers it. The former is best. This tea is brought overland from China. It injures the article to transport it by sea. When it was time to go, we bade our distinguished hosts good-bye, and they retired happy and contented to their apartments, to count their spoons. We had spent the best part of half a day in the home of royalty, and had been as cheerful and comfortable all the time as we could have been in the ship. I would as soon have thought of being cheerful in Abraham's bosom as in the palace of an emperor. I supposed that emperors were terrible people, 
I thought they never did anything but wear magnificent crowns and red velvet dressing-gowns with dabs of wool sewed on them in spots, and sit on thrones and scowl at the flunkies and the people in the parquet, and order dukes and duchesses off to execution. I find, however, that when one is so fortunate as to get behind the scenes and see them at home and in the privacy of their firesides, they are strangely like common mortals. They are pleasanter to look upon than they are in their theatrical aspect. It seems to come as natural to them to dress and act like other people as it is to put a friend's cedar pencil in your pocket when you are done using it. But I can never have any confidence in the tinsel kings of the theatre after this. It will be a great loss. I used to take such a thrilling pleasure in them. But hereafter I will turn me sadly away and say, This does not answer. This isn't the style of king that I am acquainted with. When they swagger around the stage in jeweled crowns and splendid robes, I shall feel bound to observe that all the emperors that ever I was personally acquainted with wore the commonest sort of clothes, and did not swagger. And when they come on the stage attended by a vast bodyguard of soups in helmets and tin breastplates, it will be my duty as well as my pleasure to inform the ignorant that no crowned head of my acquaintance has a soldier anywhere about his house or his person. Possibly it may be thought that our party tarried too long, or did other improper things, but such was not the case. The company felt that they were occupying an unusually responsible position. They were representing the people of America, not the government, and therefore they were careful to do their best to perform their high mission with credit. On the other hand, the imperial families, no doubt, considered that in entertaining us they were more especially entertaining the people of America than they could by showering attentions on a whole platoon of ministers plenipotentiary, and therefore they gave to the event its fullest significance, as an expression of goodwill and friendly feeling toward the entire country. We took the kindnesses we received as attentions thus directed, of course, and not to ourselves as a party that we felt a personal pride in being received as the representatives of a nation, we do not deny. That we felt a national pride in the warm cordiality of that reception cannot be doubted. Our poet has been rigidly suppressed, from the time we let go the anchor. When it was announced that we were going to visit the Emperor of Russia, the fountains of his great deep were broken up, and he reigned ineffable bosh for four-and-twenty hours. Our original anxiety as to what we were going to do with ourselves was suddenly transformed into anxiety about what we were going to do with our poet. The problem was solved at last. Two alternatives were offered him. He must either swear a dreadful oath that he would not issue a line of his poetry while he was in the Tsar's dominions, or else remain under guard on board the ship until we were safe at Constantinople again. He fought the dilemma long, but yielded at last. It was a great deliverance. Perhaps the savage reader would like a specimen of his style. I do not mean this term to be offensive. I only use it because the gentle reader has been used so often that any change from it cannot but be refreshing. Save us and sanctify us, and finally, then, see good provisions we enjoy while we journey to Jerusalem. For so man proposes, which it is most true, and time will wait for none, nor for us, too. The sea has been unusually rough all day. However, we have had a lively time of it, anyhow. We have had quite a run of visitors. The Governor-General came, and we received him with a salute of nine guns. He brought his family with him. 
I observed that carpets were spread from the pier-head to his carriage for him to walk on, though I have seen him walk there without any carpet when he was not on business. I thought maybe he had what the accidental insurance people might call an extra-hazardous polish—policy joke, but not above mediocrity—on his boots, and wished to protect them, but I examined and could not see that they were blacked any better than usual. It may have been that he had forgotten his carpet before, but he did not have it with him anyhow. He was an exceedingly pleasant old gentleman. We all liked him, especially Blucher. When he went away, Blucher invited him to come again and fetch his carpet along. Prince Dolgoruki and a grand marshal or two, whom we had seen yesterday at the reception, came on board also. I was a little distant with these parties at first, because when I have been visiting emperors I do not like to be too familiar with people I only know by reputation, and whose moral characters and standing in society I cannot be thoroughly acquainted with. I judged it best to be a little offish at first. I said to myself, princes and counts and grand admirals are all very well, but they are not emperors, and one cannot be too particular about who he associates with. Baron Wrangel came, also. He used to be Russian ambassador at Washington. I told him I had an uncle who fell down a shaft and broke himself in two as much as a year before that. That was a falsehood. But then I was not going to let any man eclipse me on surprising adventures, merely for the want of a little invention. The Baron is a fine man, and is said to stand high in the Emperor's confidence and esteem. Baron Unger Sternberg, a boisterous, whole-souled old nobleman, came with the rest. He is a man of progress and enterprise, a representative man of the age. He is the chief director of the railway system of Russia, a sort of railroad king. In his line he is making things move along in this country. He has travelled extensively in America. He says he has tried convict labor on his railroads, and with perfect success. He says the convicts work well, and are quiet and peaceable. He observed that he employs nearly ten thousand of them now. This appeared to be another call on my resources. I was equal to the emergency. I said we had eighty thousand convicts employed on the railways in America, all of them under sentence of death for murder in the first degree. That closed him out. We had General Totleben, the famous defender of Sebastopol during the siege, and many inferior army and also navy officers, and a number of unofficial Russian ladies and gentlemen. Naturally a champagne luncheon was in order, and was accomplished without loss of life. Toasts and jokes were discharged freely, but no speeches were made save one thanking the Emperor and the Grand Duke, through the Governor-General, for our hospitable reception, and one by the Governor-General in reply, in which he returned the Emperor's thanks for the speech, etc., etc. End of chapter 37